Reconciliation Rising is funded in part by the Carnegie Corporation of New York and brought to you by Kevin Aberesk, Margaret Jacobs, Gabby Mace, and Dalen Zagurski. Judge Abby Abenanti of the Yurok Nation became the first female Native American lawyer in California and the first Native American to serve as a judicial officer for the state of California. In 1997, Judge Abby began serving as a judge for the Yurok Nation and since 2007 has been the Yurok Tribal Court's chief judge. Judge Abby has established an innovative wellness court that focuses on restorative justice and healing. We sure appreciate your time, Judge. Uh, thank you so much for being willing to talk to us for our podcast. Uh, we wanted to, to start maybe by just having you introduce yourself and uh, we can uh, ask some questions from there. So again, thank you. Okay. Nithnow Judge Abby Rekoy Ak Ayukui. What I said was, my name is Judge Abby. Um, hello, and I live on Rekwa. All right. So uh, maybe we can just have you start by describing um, how you grew up and uh, and what sort of uh, values were instilled in you at a young age. Uh, maybe start there. I grew up in uh, Humboldt County, right outside. Um, Arcata, it was, there was a lot of difficulty. It was a, during a time when people were still pretty nasty toward, toward us. And it was difficult for my mom. She had grown up there and she had a very hard time. I don't know, you know, it's, it's hard to say how you come in and then how you're influenced by, by the things that happen. And I think at some point you have to make a choice about who you're gonna be and how you're going to proceed and clearly i got demonstrated a lot of ways i didn't want to be um, and that helped me figure out different ways to be than how i was treated i guess is the best way to say it but then there were individuals who individual acts of kindness that really helped me you know and, and who who made a point of trying to reach out to me because they could see that that I was being mistreated, you know, so that made a big impression on me. So I uh, noticed, Judge Abby, that you went to Humboldt State University mm -hmm. and you were a journalism major as, as Kevin was as well. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I know you eventually went to law school and what made you decide to switch from journalism to law? I was invited to go to coffee with these three older women in the community and not having my wits about me, I went with them. And the whole purpose of the coffee meeting was that they were saying, don't you think it'd be nice to go to law school? To which I replied, no, I never wanted to go to law school. Why would I do that? And as the conversation progressed, they finally said, well, there's a scholarship for Native Americans to go to law school and you're the only one graduating, so you're going. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I lost the argument. So <laughs> the lesson in that is do not argue with old Indian women. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I sure do. <laughs> Just in case <laughs> you're ever inclined to do so, turn and run. Yeah. You have a better chance that way. <laughs> do you regret going to law school? No, I, you know, and 
I, I see their point. I mean, they were like, you know, we need that more than we need you to be a journalist. And uh, I've done okay at it, you know. I'm not, I'm not brilliant, but I'm hardworking, and it's been okay, you know. Were you originally drawn to federal Indian law? You think you thought you might do that? No, I mean, I, I always intended to go home, which I did, you know, so it wasn't, um, you know, I went, I worked in legal services, I worked in small private practice, I worked for tribes, you know, I never had much of a wide idea of what I was going to do. I was just going to go home and, and try to help and do what I could. Well, if you wouldn't mind maybe starting to describe your, your legal career and, you know, where you started out and uh, how you got to where you're at today. All right. I, went, I was in California in legal services for a while, and then I got a fellowship to go into private practice, and I did a lot of work. Um, I'm probably the only one standing that did dependency both before the Indian Child Welfare Act and after. Um, you know, and so I was in court a lot. I was a courtroom lawyer in small counties for the most part. Uh, and then I expanded into San Francisco, into urban areas, and I represented a number of tribes. And then eventually I came to the attention of um, people in San Francisco because I was working here and I got offered the commissionership and I took that because I needed to stop traveling. So as much as I was. What, what was the commissionership? Do you mind explaining that? It was, uh, it's the entry-level judge, and they're appointed by the, the bench. And my assignment was in family law, and family law in San Francisco included family law, dependency, and delinquency. And I spent the majority of my time in dependency and or delinquency in San Francisco. And You're I went back that. to the tribe, and I, the whole... We had just been recognized in 93, so we were just getting ready to set up the infrastructure for the for our judicial system, and I was very interested in doing that and making sure we did not repeat the errors of uh, the state and federal system. So I was pretty drawn to that, and that's where I've been ever since. I mean, I do certain other things, but not a lot. You know. So, uh, Judge Abby, would you mind expanding on what you mean by the errors of the state and, and uh system that you were part of um, in regard to well, family law? I think the best way to describe it really is that th those systems are rights-based. Um, that's their culture. Our culture is responsibility-based. So then the principles that evolve from those two differences are very different. Um, and I think for us, the responsibility-based principles work better. And so that's where we've gone. You know, we're not into uh, you have a right to this or a right to that. We're into what is your responsibility in this situation and how do you exercise that responsibility? And humans are given to errors. And so once you err, how can you fix that? How can you address it? How can you reassume your rightful place in community? Because you need there's a lot of things to do and if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, that means it's not getting done. If you would mind, um, maybe you could describe kind of what typical or, or what uh, sort of legal challenges or legal issues, I guess, affect the Yurok tribe um, that you've had to address since well, joining we, the court. What we're doing is we're looking at community and we're trying to be a member of 
those people who need us extended family. If they've made a mistake, how are they going to fix it? If they need help, um, and a lot, we have very large dockets in wellness, in wellness courts for veterans, youth, families, adults. And we spend a lot of time on those people and or not on those people, with those people, trying to help them walk back into a way of life that's responsibility-based. And how are you going to meet that? What happens? How did you get here? Um, you know, we devised the only state-certified program for battery intervention, and it's been very, very successful. You know, because we expend a lot of time working on the culture, working on how did you get to what you're doing, and is that really okay with you? Hmm. You know, and how do you w walk your way back from that? And so some of the first things that we do is we, you know, we, okay, this behavior was never something we had in community before the invasion. So you need to talk to the elders in your family and figure out how it got there and how you learned it. And essentially for us, the issues were indentured slaves, boarding schools, and the massacres. You know, and so those, one of those things happened in your family where you wouldn't act like this. Because there was just no, I mean, we had thousands of years of time here where we didn't do that sort of thing. The boarding schools and massacres, obviously, I think most people probably know about, but you mentioned indentured servitude. Do you mind describing what, what that was about? I mean, I, I know what it means. I just don't know what it means Enters in your context. The communities who decided they need a workforce and they didn't have, um, they needed a source of slaves. And so they captured native people and enslaved them through the court system, interestingly mm -hmm. enough. And many of them were children because it's easier to um, control children than grown-ups. And then eventually they would grow up having been not parented and run away and come home. Uh, and with them came some bad habits. Are you referring uh, to the, was it in 1850, the act for the protection of uh, California right. Indians? Um, it was just a slavery program. You know? Yeah. How long did and I that think part of the problem, and once I was talking to a group of social workers, Yurok social workers, and they were talking about parenting practices, and I was saying, you know, you need to figure out which of your parents that you're talking about had these issues. I said, because, you know, we're all Yurok women in here, and just explain to me exactly how somebody's going to come into your house and steal your children over your dead body. I know that as well as I'm sitting here. So some of these kids got to see their mothers killed also. Because it's only one way that's going to happen. <laughs> I know it's well enough to know that. And they went, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I never want to make assumptions about, you know, the, the health or conditions of any particular tribe. Do you mind describing what sort of impact all of these different um, historical traumas have had on the Yurok people? I think many of our present day poverty issues and poverty itself, which we never had, have led to and came from the invasion and the aftermath of that. And the, you know, we survived, we're the largest surviving tribe in the state, and we survived because we ran and hid. 
well, that's really a hard way to conduct yourself, you know, um, and that the impact of all of that has trickled down to us, essentially. And it's caused serious disruption in the families. Um, and at this point, you know, I'm not faulting that as a defense mechanism, but we need to stop doing that. We need to come back out. And my, my basic premise at this point is that the people who came here did, know, did not know how to act here. And they have, in a couple hundred years, a relatively short time, pretty darn near wrecked the joint. You know, and we need to come back out and help them understand how you act here. And if we don't do that, running and hiding won't save us or them this time, because there's no place left. Hmm. Uh, do you feel that the the non-native population in your in Humboldt County is is eager or willing to to be educated about this? You know, your way me, of life. I think that you know you look at that and you go, "I'm responsible for me and for us, and I'll do what I what is right." And some of them will also. Is that going to be enough? I don't know. You know, I'm a human. I'm not a god. I don't know what they're going to do. You know, um, but I know what I'm supposed to do. And that's what I'll do. Do you see a shift in uh, the population, the non-native population, that some people are, are finally more willing to yeah, listen I think, and hear? You know, and part of it is, you know, we didn't tell them either. You know, and so, and we knew, and so we have bear some responsibility for that. You know, so we need to get out and we need to, to be part of the, of the general public at this point and help make policy and, and work with them, you know. Well, obviously, um, you've done a lot of work to, to reform uh, the judicial system, the justice system in, in your tribe. Um, I'm very interested in kind of learning about how you went about uh, doing the research that was, I assume, required to, to learn about um, the traditional ways of, of um, adjudication, I guess, uh, within, within your tribe, if you wouldn't mind describing that process and how that went. I, I didn't do a lot of research. I, you know, I'm in community. I go to things. I understand that. I've been corrected by elders. I, you know, I get how to do that. And instead of looking at this, the system I learned in law school, I looked at that and went, this is a better way to do it, you know, and that's how we set up our programs. And I don't think you can consequence people into better behavior. I think, I really believe for the most part, they don't know how to do it. And so the best thing to do is walk with them, be with them, help them through that until they have it figured out. You know, I mean, sometimes I would, you know, like our wellness cases can last for a year or two years, and then they can come back later and say, I need help with this. You know, it's being a human being is a lot harder than it looks at first, whatever, you know, and so, and there's so many things that come up and you have to, that's the advantage of living in community is that you can get that help. You know, or if I need help, I can ask for help or, 
you know, the, just the behavior. I think now one of the things I'm looking at that I want to research, I was just answering an email from somebody <clears throat> before I got on this, is I really want to look at the language and the stories that are related to justice concepts and translate those as closely as you can into English and start developing practices from those concepts. You know, and that's the problem is that the language English isn't really good for what we do. It doesn't have a lot of concepts that that we have. So you just have to observe and then try to go, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to do it. You know. <clears throat> I'm curious about the wellness court. And um, I wonder if you could talk us through one, when you started that, um, is that the, f I, I've never heard of this before. Is this, is this something you innovated or did you borrow it from someone else? And then could you walk us through what would be the experience of somebody who comes through the wellness court? And there, I think that the, uh, uh, the dominant culture calls them collaboration courts. We call them wellness courts because we're looking at a certain aspect of people's behavior and you know, we try to meet the person where they are and go, look, we're, you have a choice here. You know, they want to put you in jail for this. We would rather you come home and work with us and I'll assign somebody to help you. What do you want out of your family? What do you want for yourself? Did you finish high school? Do you need to finish high school? Uh, what do you need? Do you need help applying for a job? Do you need a ride? Do you need, you know, it's, it's all the things that we used to be able to do in community. And so we'll just provide that extra person to help you get grounded and to, to put all that together. You know, and so each person is interviewed and offered a choice. You can stay in the state system or you can come with us. We'll talk to them about it. Or sometimes they just come and say, you know, can you help us? Because my brother was in here and it really helped him. Can I come too? Sure. You can come if you like, you know. Um, and we do dependency, you know, like families who have lost their children, we help them work through that system. Um, and how do you learn how to do that? How do you learn to parent? How do you, um, how do you pick up that skill set? You know, and, and often it's, um, you know, we've had people who start out, who started out life by the time they were nine in front of a court and by the time they're mid-20s going down for their third strike and you can't do that in a year you can't get them to you know so you have to stay with them for a few years and there'll be incidences where they go you know and they do something and they go what are you thinking of you know i had one young man and um you know and he, this young man was going down for his third strike and so i said to a judge and you know in a small county this judge had been consequencing this kid for God knows how many years and none of it had worked. So I said, just let me have him for a year or two and see if I can, you know, save us all the grief. And so he did. And, um, you know, every little thing, we were at a meeting and it was a, a, a community meeting on fishing and he was furious. And he got up and he started ranting and I walked over to him and all the officers started converging on us because I grabbed him by the front of the shirt and drug him out of the meeting. And I said, you know, I have told you a thousand times, you are too big 
to rant and rave like that. You've scared every white person within 500 miles of here. How do you think this is going to end? And I was just tongue lashing him. And these cops are like, oh, my God. And he said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Judge Abby. I said, you're going to be sorry if I ever catch you doing this again. And I said, you're not even half close to sorry. I said, your two choices are you can come back in there and stand next to me or you can go home. I'll come with you. I'll come with you. Okay. But I said, you know, you can't, this isn't a prison yard. You can't act like that. You know, this is not how you do it. And so it's just that kind of hands-on, you know. Do you have um, social workers that uh, you assign to people in your wellness court? We have some social workers, but we have advocates. And I said, you know, as an advocate, most of the discipline and that kind of stuff came from aunties and grandmas, aunties, uncles, and grandmas and grandpas not parents. So I said, you know, just default into that because we all know how to act that out. Um, and, you know, that's what you do. Yeah, that, that's an interesting approach. I mean, it, okay, when you're typical, a typical judge would just sit up there and, you know, keep a kind of an, maybe an aloof air about them um, and maybe have the people like their bailiff or something deal with the, those kinds of outbursts. But yeah, dealing with that. them like an auntie or, or a grandma, I would assume, triggers yeah. in him even um, just just that reverence, perhaps for the for the elders. Yeah, they're more yeah. they're more afraid of the tongue lashing from me than they are the, the bailiff, you know. So they and they just automatically respond to it, you know, and and that's the end of that. I mean, when I devised the courtroom, we don't have a bench. We have tables. We all sit around. They're engraved with the river. They have river rocks on them. I don't wear a robe. I mean, and they see me everywhere because I'm in community with them. You know, I had these two guys, we brought them in because they, they were having a fist fight on the river over a fishing pole. And so I issued restraining orders and they came in and I was like, you know, I'm furious at both of you. I said, by my count, you guys have been fishing next to each other for 30 years and I have to issue restraining orders because you can't use your your heads, you know? And so I'm going down that road. I said, I happen to have a cultural leader here who you should have gone to and figured out what to do without coming in here. But you decided not to. Instead, be fools, and I have to issue restraining orders so you knuckleheads don't kill each other, which I can't fix. I said, now here's your choice. You can go with Ron or you can stay in here with me. Oh, okay, we'll go and run. I said, okay, I'm going to sit in my office, and when you guys are done, come and knock on the door. I said, and just hold the thought that if you don't resolve it, you're going to come back in here and face one mad old Iraq woman. So think about that very carefully. So about an hour and a half later, they're knocking on the door, and they're laughing and talking, and I walk out. I said, don't worry, Judge, it's all, it's okay. Now it's, everything's okay. I said, fine, we go back on the record. I dissolved the restraining orders, and I said, the only order is that you guys go home, tell your sons and your nephews, because I don't want to see anybody in here again from either of your families. Are we clear? Mm -hmm. Yes, Judge. Yes, Judge. That was it. Do, um, you mentioned that uh, when you work with state legal authorities and you give offenders, if that's the word you want to use, a choice, do you want to stay in the state system or do you want to come to my court do most people say i want to come to your court yeah yeah and, and I, I let them know i said no i won't lie for you and i won't cover up for you you'll do as we say or i'm going to throw you back under the bus because you know 
you did this, I didn't. Now I've talked them into letting you give this a try, but if you don't make it, I'm not covering for you and I won't cover for you because I just don't and I don't lie. And they can rely on that too. The judges can because they're used to me at this point. How long? And I practiced in their courts for years too. So it's not like I'm an unknown. I wondered how long your wellness court has been going on. At least the last decade, you know, and we expand calendars like we added veterans. You know, we're getting a veterans person that will concentrate just on veterans and youth. And we add programs to it all the time. Have Has anything changed from when you started work with the Yurok tribe and started implementing this different, your traditional, more traditional justice system. Uh, Has anything changed from that first, when you first started to now? Well, I think as we grow, as we get more success, we have more people in the community helping too, you know, who will will go, oh, you know, let them come in and work here with me or let them do this or, you know, and there's more of that going on and, we get a lot more assistance in community from people too. You know, and, and part of the wellness court is you have to give back. So we have them, we assign projects for them. It's like what you would be akin to community service, you know. Um, and the first option in all of our quasi criminal behavior is community service, because I'd rather have them um, go out in community and do something and people go, oh, you know, look what Margaret did. She did this instead of look what Margaret did and she was in trouble now, you know. Mm-hmm. I do wonder if some people would <clears throat> listening to this may, may wonder what happens if somebody commits a really serious crime like murder or, you know, something like that. Do you, do you have prisons there or jails there? We don't because it's a public law 280 state and so the yeah. state has concurrent jurisdiction. Although we're working to take some more jurisdiction back. When people are in jail for serious crimes, we have a reentry program that is fairly sophisticated and we work with a reentry approach with them. We have homes for them when they come out. I like to have it pretty managed because let's just say it doesn't help your social skills any. So have uh have you consulted with or have other tribes come to you to to establish similar courts in their own nation? Lots of people come and visit, not so much uh, during the pandemic, but we were just, yesterday I was just talking to somebody from Maine who had wanted to come and we let them appear virtually so they could watch the calendars. And now they want to come out because they feel like they could travel a little more now. And a lot of people from Alaska have come down and, you know, different things like that. Mm. That's great. What about non-native courts? Have you had anybody wanting to implement this within their own courts? Well, we have joint jurisdiction courts and we're in two counties and we have family wellness court in both of them. And our people are given the option to go into the family wellness court in the state system. And in that joint jurisdiction court, one of the Yurok judges will sit with the state court judge. And the, the huge difference is that we in those courts they meet every two weeks as opposed to every six months or whatever 
we have found that you've got to have a lot more contact than the state system gives you. It just doesn't work that way. You know, if somebody has an issue, waiting six months is not really a good idea. Or if they don't do this or they, you know, need you assigned to this program and then you realize if they could get a job, it would be much better and maybe better switch the programming so they can work. You know, there's all sorts of things that don't fit. You know, <laughs> you think they fit in the moment and then 10 minutes later, they don't fit at all. Um, can you describe how you handle uh, things like custody battles? Well, essentially, they come in and we work out as they have to mediate it. You know, my, what we stress over and over is, you know, you guys made the decision to parent. We didn't, we'll help you figure out how to do it, but you have to do it. You have to participate. You know, we have also the only child support, tribally recognized and state recognized child support court. Um, so we transfer those cases in. And I said, you know, when I set it up, I will go through the extra work of setting up an in-kind system. Um, and that means if the two parents decide they'd rather, you know, like fish or give wood or do whatever, get a deer, we will value that as child support if you both agree. And oftentimes you do that. Sometimes it's babysitting because sometimes the parents don't get along, but the grandparents do, you know, and so we'll go, okay, well, if X's parents babysit, that's going to count for X's child support. Okay. Because I really need the babysitters. I can go to work, you know, and so we'll do all of that kind of thing. Now, domestic violence is different because you have to you have to have that separation, but we involve the families in making sure and trying to help there be contact. You know, on our domestic violence program, I think we've had very few people um, not be able to maintain their behavior after the, the program, but we've worked really hard on them and that, you know, our curriculum was rewritten by Chris Peters because I wanted it to be culturally sound, so. Maybe we could start to talk about kind of what um, impact you've seen in these restorative justice models uh, within your tribe. You know, things like um, has it reduced recidivism? Um, how effective has it been, essentially? It, it is very effective. I think what we need more is more long-term check-ins that we've found, you know, like after three, four, five years when somebody's been out, we need more contact. And part of we had that built in because we would have wellness gatherings and all the graduates would come, but we haven't had that for three years. And I think that's not been good. And we were just talking the other day, we're gonna have our first wellness gathering sort of post whatever uh, next month, uh, you know, and start doing that again so people could come back together. You know, and those are usually big meals and discussions and laughing and you bring your families, you know, to it too. It isn't just, okay, well, Kevin graduated, so he comes. No, his whole family does. His you know, mom and dad, his grandma, whoever wants to come, gets to come. And then we have a program, and that really helps because it reminds people of why. You know, and even small things like at the wellness gatherings, we would have raffles. People love raffles, you know. But our raffle was, okay, you pull a ticket. Kevin got the winning ticket. He gets to pick a prize to give to somebody, not to keep for himself, 
but to give to somebody. And people are thrilled with that, to be able to pick something out and give it to somebody. You know, because we have nice prizes that, you know, people in our community would really like, whether it's lanterns or kicks, you know, stoves or sleeping bags or whatever. And just being able to have a really, what people would think expensive gift that they can give to whoever they want. And they'll run over and give it to people. And it's just like so exciting you know, to be the winner. <laughs> but it's just reinforcing different things, you know, because most raffles, you, you get the prize and you take off with it instead of you get the prize and you get to give it to somebody. That just changes the whole thing. Absolutely. Sort of like our concept of giveaways. I'm sure you probably have exactly. some Exactly. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it, that's exactly what it is. It's mm -hmm. great. You mentioned earlier, uh, Judge Abby, that um, it's hard to translate some of the concepts from Yurok to English. And I wondered what, if there's any close approximation in the English language to what you're doing. I, I mean, I've heard your work referred to as restorative justice. Is that the word you'd use in English? I don't do it. I just say it's the Yurok way. You know, I don't really use that word. Um, I mean, I don't have anything against it, but it's not what a word we would have used. I mean, we have stories, we do different things, you know. We have a cultural officer in the court, a full-time person, you know, and one of the gifts that we give the community is we have a storyteller and his son goes to an elementary school, tells the story, they partner with a theater group, they turn it into a puppet show, and at the end of the puppet show, we, we gift the school with a dinner for the, all the kids' parents and whoever came to the puppet show. But the story is, we pick out a story, and the story that they tell is Little Bird, and Little Bird has broken Little Bird's wing and can't fly with his family like he's supposed to, and so he has to ask for help so he can stay the winter. And so it's the whole line of the story, the storyline is, how do you ask for help? What do you do when you don't get the help? And, you know, that, so it's a lesson. It's always, all of our stories have a lesson, you know, and so that's the gift we give to the community because we're trying to do more of that, as I mentioned in the beginning, outreach, you know, and that's a gift that we give to the community because people have to ask for help when you need it, you know. And it's hard when you ask for help and nobody helps, you know, and how do you, how do you manage that? And how do you ask for help? You know, because part of the story is Little Bird has to offer a song first, you know, and then what happens? Great. How has um, the outside world um, sort of received this model? Um, you know, what do you hear from judges, I guess, and things like that from from outside your tribe? I think more and more people are looking at it. You know, we, earlier this week, we did a program with the fed, federal bench here in the district about um, domestic violence and about how to work with that, you know, as an issue and how our approach in our better intervention program and why it's important because just punishing people hasn't really done anything for them or anybody else, frankly. 
you know, and it didn't take me very long to figure out just protecting the victim wasn't enough because then my problem just moved three houses down, you know, instead of whatever. Have you uh, dealt with sexual violence? Not a lot because that's, those are the crimes that get into state in a public law 280, they go there, you know, and so what we're trying to do is figure out, um, you know, we, we've dealt a lot with missing and murdered um, and we have a very well-developed project on that. We did a lot of research. We just did our third major paper on it and we've raised a significant amount of funds to set up a prosecutorial arm and part of what they're going to do and they've raised the money for an investigator because I need somebody to look at the cold cases and to develop protocols for us. We just got a feather alert passed in the state uh, which will be an alert system for when natives go missing. You know, So we're doing a lot of that stuff that we never used to do that's sort of reaching out. And one of the projects on our list is it is a constant source of, I don't know what to me, that there is no alert system for when foster children do not come home. You know, and I said, that is the fault of every grown up in this world, because who allows any child to go unnoticed when they're missing? That is not okay. You know, because Amber Alert and all those other alerts do not cover foster kids. And so that we're getting ready to, with some allies, bring um, before our legislature. And I said, you know, that's not the thing where you go, okay, well, I want an alert system for Yurok kids. You know, I want an alert system for children who are in foster care who do not come home, period. You know, and it's not okay that they've been ignored like this, in my opinion. So that's, those are the kinds of things we're doing more of. You know, and a lot of people go, and even I've had senior people in the Justice Department go, what, there's no alert system? And I'm like, you guys are in charge. You don't even know what you have, you know? <clears throat> but I'm trying to work on my manners, so I don't really say that, but I just think it. <laughs> You know, so things like that, where we're trying to widen our scopes. And, and if we get protocols for missing and murdered, then, you know, to allow the other tribes to use them is really important to me. And like I said, with the, with the foster kids, you know, I would never just go, I want a system for our kids. I mean, I'll develop a protocol internally once we have the alert system and share the protocol you know, but the alert has to come from the state because most of them are in state homes. Is California the first state who's passed the a feather alert? No, I think, didn't Washington have one? I'm trying to think. So, because we patterned it after that because um, I really, I wanted that, but I think we're, you know, we're set up to do that. We're doing a lot of different things like that that we didn't do initially trying to expand the systems, you know, and where they can overlap into other people's children, like the foster care thing. Have you had other tribes reach out to you uh, wanting to uh, replicate what you're doing there uh, within their nations? We, we generally have a lot of people making inquiries and before the epidemic, people would come by a lot, you know, or want to visit for a week and we always are, are welcoming them. 
That's so terrific. I was just looking up feather alerts because I was curious about other oh, yeah. states and but I mostly found what came up was about what you all are doing in California. Yeah, it's on the governor's desk now and I, I'm pretty certain he's gonna sign it. That reminds me, Judge Abby, about, um, I'm aware that Governor Newsom has established a, a I can't remember the exact name, but a, like a truth and healing commission. Right. Um, have you been involved with that at all? They're going to have the, one of their first public hearings over in San Francisco in a couple of weeks. And I've been asked to appear at that and I'll do that. And I, I talk with them a lot. Christina Snyder runs that office and her assistants, Loretta Miranda, and I know both of them. So, What do you hope will come out of that? Well, I think there has to, people have to develop an approach to respond to what has happened besides ignore it. You know, so that's what you're initially looking at and how do you heal? Because at one point, you know, people were talking about reconciliation and I'm like, you can't reconcile genocide and nor should you try. You can try to heal from it, but nothing is going to make genocide right. So I don't like the concept of reconciliation. It's just a bad word for it, but you have to try to heal, you know? And so then how do you do that? And what steps can you take? And what land do you have control over that maybe you shouldn't have? Um, you know, taking it back from private parties is a different thing, but I think people have to acknowledge how they got it or where it came from, <clears throat> you know, and I think it's a conversation. It isn't, um, what Abby thinks should happen or whatever. I think you have to have, there were a lot of tribes that were decimated, you know, and they have to be involved too. And we have something between 60 and 80 tribes that are unrecognized in this state that are seeking recognition. And most of the reason they're unrecognized is because they were so decimated during the process. I was fascinated to hear that uh, the Yurok did not gain regain federal recognition until 1993. Yeah. You mentioned that. Were Did they have federal recognition and lose it during the termination era or you just didn't get federal recognition until- No, they, they tried to, to, to uh, put everybody on hoopla. That's what happened. Mm. I'm, I imagine that was a huge, long legal battle to get recognition. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine. Yeah, you know, and the fishing wars came after that. It's, it's just been a, a long involved mud wrestling contest. Do you ever think there'll come a day when um, this sort of model, which I guess in this context I'll call restorative justice, um, could ever be implemented in, in the United States courts, uh, state courts, county courts? I don't know. We talk a lot about it, you know, and how do you how do you scale it for a um, urban area and how do you do, you know, those kinds of things. And, you know, I think you have to go back to some of the founding principles. And we were talking about, in my opinion, like the whole melting pot was a drastic, ugly error of judgment. You cannot check your culture at the door and then go and say, what I'm going to do is be this now. Because a lot of people came from cultures that would never have tolerated this sort of behavior. You know, this like oh, you have it, let me just take Kevin's, but I don't have to worry about it. Wait, wait a minute, that's not okay. You know, many, many cultures would not have put up with that. That's a pretty late introduction in terms of human behavior. So I think that people have to start remembering where they came from. 
You know, it isn't just us, it's them too. You know, and just even like we took some Irish, I was going to say kids, not kids, men into our domestic violence program. And we made them do the same thing. You know, go back and ask. And I said, because the truth of the matter is, you guys are probably Celts. You're tribal people. Where did boarding schools come from? They came from when the Brits tried to smash the Celts. You know, and that's, and then they imported them to smash us. And many, many people don't realize that. You know, and I said, you're more like us than you are like them. Why do you think so many of you ran to the reservations? You know, because we were like-minded. And a lot of Irish people in this country don't know that. You know, they don't know the biggest monument to Native Americans is in the middle of Ireland, for God's sakes. You know, and those, those kind of, that has to be out there. Can you uh, uh, go further about what, what that monument is for our listeners? Um, it was because of the famine and the Choctaw sent money to, to them during the famine. They, they collected all their white people money and sent it over to them. Um, it wasn't a great amount of money, but it was significant in terms of the time. And it came from that essentially. And they always had exchanges of ambassadors since then. Well, I think we're kind of running out of questions here, Abby. Is there anything we haven't asked about that you might want to talk about? No, I'm good. Okay. Do you have any sort of uh, future plans for, for the court system there that you might want to mention? Or? Um, you know, we're trying to, like I said, do some research and language and get those concepts over so we can do it. I want to do more research on indentured slaves. I'd like to expand, you know, some of our options, our housing options and intern options and those kinds of things so that people can come and learn and help, you know, and, and get more of our kids through school and then try to get them parts of the school that we don't like out of them when they come home and, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's, there's always something to do. Um, and the dams are coming down hopefully soon. And we're hoping the river will rebound with that, you know. So there's lots to look forward to. And with the end of the pandemic, the dance, there's been more dances this summer. So that's good. And hopefully, you know, next year they'll, they'll be back. Mm. It was uh, wonderful to to be out in your area of the the world, and we had a we got a lot of little things, and uh, it does seem like a lot of amazing things are happening there and, and in the Indian country in general. You know, mm -hmm. with visionary people like you who are melding tradition with modern uh, mm -hmm. systems. So it's it's really a pleasure to talk to you. Well, great. Thank you. Well, I hope you both have a good day. Judge Abby Abenanti has transformed the Yurok judicial system through the incorporation of Native practices in her courtroom. Judge Abby has created innovative alternatives to incarceration that have proven to be more effective in rehabilitating offenders and in healing communities. Thank you for joining us on Reconciliation Rising a project dedicated to Natives and non-Natives confronting our past and reimagining our future. If you'd like to learn more about our project, please check out our website 
at www.reconciliationrising.org.